The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's wonderful that we're all here to practice the Dharma on the 4th of July. And it's wonderful for me to see so many friends. So on this 4th of July, in our country, we celebrate our independence. We celebrate our freedom. And often that freedom is the freedom to do whatever we want, regardless of how what we do affects those around us or affects somebody else. So we believe we have the right to put up 100-foot redwood trees on our property, no matter what that might do to our neighbor's property. Or to build a second story on our house, no matter that it completely blocks the view of the house behind us. It's our property. And certainly we believe we have the right to have a gun to protect our property and protect ourselves. I might suggest that it would be a good idea for us to consider what we mean by freedom. But more importantly, I want to talk about the freedom in this practice. We who come here to IMC, we who follow the Buddhist path, celebrate a different kind of freedom. A freedom that includes our democratic freedom, but is so much more. Often we say that our freedom in this country must be defended by the military. I just read in the paper this morning that we must constantly fight to keep our freedom. In this practice, we talk about a freedom that is without fighting, without violence, without harm. We talk about a freedom that comes from discipline. Often in our culture, discipline is almost a dirty word. But in our practice, discipline is very important. The discipline of the Eightfold Path, the discipline of the precepts, the discipline of our mindfulness practice, the discipline that we practice in our everyday lives. More importantly, the discipline of our minds. And far from being a burden, this discipline supports us. It guides us on our path. It helps us from going too far astray, one way or the other. It keeps us focused and very efficient. 
It keeps us mindful and conscious. So we don't see this discipline as a dirty word. We see it as part of our path to freedom. We celebrate the freedom of a heart and mind. The freedom of a heart that is so open, so wide, it encompasses everything. A heart that can encompass, can hold the joys and the sorrows. A heart that is not afraid to break. In fact, it does break to allow the compassion that's within to flow forth. And a mind that is so spacious, as spacious as the sky, or as spacious as the ocean, holding it all, opposing nothing, judging nothing as being inadequate or inferior, holding it all with equanimity. A freedom where uh, personal responsibility allows us to change the world by changing ourselves. A freedom that accepts or aligns ourselves with life, aligns with what is that does not resist And we find this alignment with what is brings great freedom and happiness. And a freedom that cares at least as much for others as it does for getting what is mine. And this creates a loving and safe atmosphere for all of us. We don't need a military. We don't need to fight for this freedom. When we care as much for each other as for ourselves, that creates the safety and the freedom. A freedom where attachment and Clinging can be abandoned, where we abandon the unskillful thoughts and actions and cultivate the qualities, the paramis, on the path to our enlightenment or our freedom. Letting go of our deepest attachments letting go of our clinging. The whole world is mine when I cling to nothing. Or as Zen Master Dogen said, the way is not difficult for those with no preferences. So letting go of our attachment to our preferences. As I was thinking about 
this talk. Uh, I titled it Path to Freedom. And I was thinking about path. The first thing that came to mind was the path. And then a path. And then my path. Your path. Our path. And I realized that it was all. It was all of the above. I'll say just a little bit about each one. First, the path. When we say the path, what do we generally think of? The Eightfold Path, right? And certainly that is perhaps the core of our path. But our path is so much more than just the Eightfold Path. There's the path of mindfulness. There's the path of the precepts. There's the path of letting go. The path of the practice of generosity and gratitude and compassion and, of course, the underpinning of non-harming. So the path is very wide, very, very wide to encompass it all. And yet, it is not sloppy. It is not so wide that anything goes. There are parameters. Very, very broad, but there are parameters. The path is gradual. And in this book, The Island by Ajahn Amaro and Pasano, Ajahn Pasano talks about the gradual path. And I'd like to read just one paragraph. This is hard to do. <laughs> the need for a gradual path of practice becomes clearer as we recognize the many diversions that can pull us off the path. Without a clearly laid out step-by-step -step training, it would be very easy to wander haphazardly, looking for some ill-defined spiritual denouement, or to immerse oneself in a series of nebulous and vague practices that don't really lead anywhere other than to more confusion and difficulty. By relying on the middle path, we can directly cut through the internal and external sources of confusion that distract the mind from realizing Nibbana. This will ultimately require a radical letting go or relinquishment. But this is precisely what this gradual path and the middle way are preparing us for. So again, the need for discipline, the support of discipline. So the path, the path leading to freedom, leading to nirvana, nibbana. And it's important to remember that the path, the way, is not the same as freedom. It is not the same as Nibbana. The path takes us to freedom. 
the analogy is used of the mountain and the road leading to the mountain. The mountain is already there. The road takes us to the mountain. When we get to the mountain, we can let go of the road. So too with the path to Nibbana. When we get to freedom, when we get to the end of suffering, we can let go of the path. In the meantime, it's very valuable. It's very important to follow the path. So Ajahn Pasano talks about not only the gradual path, but the middle way, the middle path. We often hear that. We often use those terms. But they're not always well understood. The middle path can refer to neither extreme, which is often the way it's used. But it also means more than that. It also means the transcendence of the dualities. So more than just the middle way between two polar opposites, there's a transcendence of those opposites. It always reminds me of what Rumi said, out beyond ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. That is the field of freedom. The field that is found from the middle way, the transcendence. So not only is it the path, it is a path. And this can be very important also. In the interfaith work that I do, it's very necessary that I see our path as a path, one of many, not the only, perhaps the best for me, but not the only. There are many paths to enlightenment, many paths to freedom. There are as many paths as there are traditions, religions. And it's important that we honor all of them because any path practiced diligently, practiced with sincerity, practiced impeccably, can lead to enlightenment. This is why the Dalai Lama says it's important that we stay with our original path. He doesn't say we have to, but he encourages us to. Because he recognizes that there are many paths and that very often our original path is what suits us best. Not necessarily, that doesn't seem to be true for me, but for many people it is. And many people find that following this path can be a complement or uh, can coexist with another path. So many uh, people, many teachers follow this path and also their original path, whether that be Judaism or Christianity or whatever. Many teachers follow Advaita Vedanta as well as our Buddhist path. Enlightenment might look 
very similar or it might look very differently. Sometimes people's experiences, both within our Buddhist tradition and in other traditions, sound very much the same. Other times they sound very, very different. We're different people. And our experience and how we describe our experience might be quite different. Then there's my path and your path. And again, my path and your path might be very similar, but they also might be very, very different. Each of us has a slightly different path. Each of us comes with slightly different karma. Each of us has different obstacles that we must work with. Each of us has different timing. Some of our paths are quite linear. Others are quite jagged. We may have long times of great growth and then times of plateaus, times of quiet and integrating. So we can't necessarily tell by looking what someone else's path is. It's important, therefore, not to judge someone else's path. We can't really know. It's like the Native American saying of, walking a mile in someone else's shoes. We don't really know, unless we are in someone else's shoes, what their path is. Some of us are lay practitioners. Some are monastic. Some have families and some don't. So all these paths are valuable, are important. All of these paths are paths to freedom. Again, the sincerity, the diligence, the, um, the discipline, determine whether the path will take us to freedom or whether it will not. Then there's our path. Our path together. We have, we walk this path together. We have the Sangha. We are spiritual friends. We meet together. We support one another. And that support can come in different forms. We have shared values and shared goals. We live by the same precepts. We live by the same basis of non-harming and compassion and cultivate generosity and gratitude. And of course we have the Dhammapada, the path of practice, of the path of the Dharma. And there is a chapter in the Dhammapada, chapter 20, 
entitled The Path. I can't read it all, but I'll read the first three stanzas. The best of paths is the eightfold path. The best of truths, the four noble truths. The best of qualities is dispassion. And the best among gods and humans is the one with eyes to see, the mindful. This is the path for purifying one's vision. There is no other. Follow it, you'll bewilder Mara. Follow it, you'll put an end to suffering. This is the path I have proclaimed, having pulled out the arrows. It is up to you to make strong effort. Tathagatas merely tell you how. Following the path, those absorbed in meditation will be freed from Mara's bonds. So it's up to us, each of us, to walk our path within the path, which is wide enough to hold it all. Teachers can inspire us, can guide us, can teach us, and can lead us. But the path of practice, the path to freedom, is up to us. The path leading to the complete ending of suffering, we must walk ourselves. We must find our way, our path, and follow it impeccably. I love that word, impeccably. Giving it our all with wholeheartedness and dedication. As Don Juan said, it doesn't matter what we do exactly as long as we do it with great abandon, with great dedication. We might argue that it does matter what we do, but I think the point is that there are many paths. And as long as we follow that path with great sincerity, then that path will lead us to our freedom. So I went through this much faster than I expected to. (laughs) Maybe because of the microphone. Are there comments, questions, discussion? One of the things that I was thinking about as you were talking, uh, we have a, we're still continuing our neighborhood study group, and um, I volunteered to, to lead the group discussion uh, next week. And so I was just thinking of the comments that I wanted to make because the topic um, uh, we had decided on was selfing. And I was realizing that my my path it has a strong selfing kind of element to that, and I'm not sure um, how to reconcile that, I guess, is a good word. Do you have any thoughts about that? 
that's interesting. I, I hadn't thought of it as I as I was thinking about this. Um, I suppose yes, it could be seen that way. That my path uh, is is uh, could be seen as as selfing. But I think what I'm meaning is that really there are great differences in our paths. That no two paths are exactly the same. And for that reason, it's really um, useless to compare. So if I compare, which I have to confess I have done many times, my path <laughs> to somebody else's path, um, of course, when we have comparing mind, then it's usually that our path somehow isn't as good or uh, as valuable as somebody else's. But, but this is not the case. What I mean by my path is that the path that this life stream follows or the path that it creates, really, can look very, very differently from any of your paths. Of course, the core can be the same, but I have different life work. I have a different personality. Um, I have different proclivities. I have different obstacles, perhaps, that are unique to this life, although unique in one way and not so different in another way. So it's not that I cling to my path. In fact, what I have discovered is the more that I follow what seems to come from inside, what I am calling my path, the less of me there is. It seems paradoxical in a way. Um, a teacher said to us Wednesday night that what she found was that more and more on this path, um, she became more and more of who she was. And I find that too, but as I say, that more and more of who I am becomes more and more of nobody in a way. <laughs> of, um, there's, great, there's great spaciousness around that. There's great uh, emptiness around that. Again, it can seem paradoxical. The more we follow our own path, the less of an individual uh, holding to that path it is. Does that make sense? It's a little bit like um, Gil told me many years ago when Jack was uh, writing his book after the law, or doing the research for his book, after the ecstasy, the laundry, what he d discovered was that uh, long-time practitioners or enlightened beings became more and more unique, more and more uh, different as, as they followed the path. So that seems to suggest the same thing, that, that the inner um, bent. Um, Deepak Chopra says we each have a dharma. We should follow our dharma. We each have a path. We each have uh, certain things that will determine the way 
this particular life stream goes. And as we follow those, which comes from inside, is not imposed from the outside, not imposed from the culture, but comes from uh, this whatever, this yearning, this uh, uh, force from inside, can make us look very, very different. Partly because we let go of cultural ideas. We let go of any attachment to who we think we are or should be. Um, We let go of any ideas that we should be this or should be that. Or in our work life that we should become whatever because that's what's needed in the culture right now. That we allow to unfold what seems to want to unfold in this life stream. Does that help? <laughs> Long answer. Do you want to say what you meant, Jeff? <laughs> I, I will. Um, Selfing is, uh, is the, um, the building up of one's own identity, it, it, and, and it kind of locks, if, when I do that, it locks me into, this is who I am. I'm a skier, I ski very well, or I don't do team sports well, and so it kind of gives us uh, the illusion of safety, and it, it, it is safety in, in the short term, but in terms of ultimate um, liberation, it's, it keeps one locked in, like in the... Um, uh, stages of enlightenment, uh, they, they, they list different factors that people have to let go of or, or uh, that they do let go of as a natural process, I guess, and bef- as they move from uh, the, the earlier stages to a full um, liberation. Does that help? Yes. Um, it's, it's, a big, it's a big topic. And often the word selfing gets thrown around uh, rather carelessly. So um, it is important that, that we see clearly what we're talking about. And as Jeff suggested, uh, in general what we mean by selfing is creating this self, this person who is or does or has or whatever um, something and clings to that, gets their identity, gets their sense of worth um, from clinging to that. And what we find as we continue on the path, as we practice, is that uh, those kinds of clingings, those kinds of attachments, really end up being restrictive rather than freeing when we see ourselves as whatever, this or that or something else, if we see ourselves as a wonderful skier and then we crash one time, that can really upset our sense of self. If we see ourselves as anything, then it can prevent us from doing something else. And so seeing how we create that sense of self, how we are constantly 
um, reminding ourselves who we are, uh, what we do or don't do, how valuable we are or not valuable we are, because creating a sense of self can be very negative as well as positive. We can create, in fact, sometimes I think a stronger sense of self out of um, an insecurity or a negative sense of self than we do from holding to a very positive sense of self. So learning to let go of both, to just be, to live our practice without any attachment to who we are or what that should look like. Someone else? Uh, I wonder if you could comment, please, on um, Buddhism and, and social justice when you talk about the Rumi quote. It it speaks to me deeply, but it's also somewhat troubling when it's mm-hmm. out beyond right and wrong. And there are things that we feel you know, need to be different in the world, and if you could comment on that. Yes. <laughs> um. This is, this is really important. One of my ways of being in the world is being involved in social justice. Uh, from a Buddhist perspective, it can look very different from other perspectives. Because in Buddhist practice, we want to get away from the idea of right and wrong. That's the duality. And calling someone or something wrong creates, if not enemies, at least a resistance. And we don't want to do that. So we work in social justice out of a sense of compassion, out of a desire that everyone have what we have. This is what I meant by when we want for others what we want for ourselves, at least as much, if not more. So when we, when we do social justice, we do it from that place of compassion rather than from a judgmental place. And sometimes that's tricky. It takes often years of practice for us to be able to do that. Uh, the example that always comes to my mind is before this last Gulf War, when many, many Buddhist practitioners did not want to see um, the U.S. begin a war in Iraq. And so many people came out to demonstrate. And at the big demonstration in San Francisco, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship had a presence. And what we did was sit in meditation as there were speeches being given. And we held that space without creating division or enemies. So while we did not want to see our country attack another country, neither did we want to set up 
opposition. This is the same as, as Buddhist Peace Fellowship does with executions. Because of our acknowledgement of the premise of non-harming and because of the first precept about not taking life, uh, Buddhists feel that uh, a presence at executions is valuable, is important. But again, not wanting to oppose, not wanting to create resistance or enemies, the way we are present is to be a quiet presence. So at executions, we will sit or stand in silence. Um, Not silence that is passive or doing nothing, but a silence that says, you know, we are here to witness this this taking of life and not to oppose, um, you know, the family of the victim or the guards or the penal system or anybody else, but just to be that presence, that witness for the taking of a life. Does that... I find in my practice that many years of practice leads me to want to work for social justice. But the years also enable me not to uh, be in opposition. I, I, in one of my passions, <laughs> I will frequently speak up and ask people not to refer to the opposition as enemies, or not to speak unkindly. Um, I received an email the other day, very inflammatory, from a person that tends to do this. And I sat on it 24 hours, and then I wrote back and asked, please, please, may we show respect for each other. We can differ. We can differ greatly and still be respectful of each other's position. We don't have to name call. We don't have to put somebody else down. Um, We can be very respectful in our disagreement. And in fact, when we do that, then disagreement is really um, enlivening and helpful. But when we do it without respect, uh, it can be destroying and, and polarizing. Someone else? Someone want to speak of their path of freedom? Mm-hmm. Just now while you were talking about following your path, going to demonstrations, sitting in, in uh, uh, events on capital punishment, you know, the, the bombing Iraq and all that, and you're doing it because you are following your path, because those are the things that you believe on your path. But then earlier, you said that there are different paths. And I was wondering if it would be possible that people would decide on doing those things by also following their paths. So, and the paths are do not necessarily you know, uh, do things the same way, right? So I was wondering if you could clarify that. 
that someone on their path might feel that bombing or invading another country was important, right? Yes, yes, of course, that, that does happen. Um, and it's one reason that we don't want to cling to the rightness of our action uh, because ultimately we don't know. And out of horrible, what we might call failures or horrible acts like war, like killing, can come good. So we don't know. It's my understanding that, that the Dalai Lama was asked after the war began, about a year or two or whatever, I don't know how much longer, um, what we should do. And his answer, I didn't hear this, but I was told, um, was, I don't know. That's why it's so important to practice and not allow a war like this to get started. Because once, once it's started, what does one do? Um, the Dalai Lama has followed, of course, a path of nonviolence, uh, even as his country was invaded and um, destroyed in many, many ways. And yet he has chosen not to fight back, although there have been monks that have resisted, have stood up. Um, you know, I think, it's, I think it's an age-old debate among traditions, whether there is a war of necessity or a valuable war. Um, there are many, many situations people will speak of that uh, are hard to answer. But I, I tend to feel as the Dalai Lama, therefore, it's important for us to practice and not allow these things to get started. Because once they do, then what do you do? And, and we practice to the best of our ability the precept of not taking life, the underpinning of not harming. Well, I see that we're a little beyond, so I would like to say may we all aspire to the completion of the path, to the complete ending of all suffering, not just ours, but everyone's, and to the highest bliss, which is love. <laughs>